was that sound? Okay. Good. Yeah. I have to wait to the very last minute to come in to give a talk. I don't know why, but I always get nervous, scared. So I asked Mary Oliver if she would come give this talk with me, and she agreed. And <laughs> so I think I'm okay. Um, let me start with uh, a uh, poem. Kind of point to what I'm going to talk about. In this great book of Mary Oliver's, almost every poem in here I love. Um, it's called Such Silence. She says, as deep as I ever went into the forest, I came upon an old stone bench, very, very old, and around it a clearing, and beyond that trees taller and older than I had ever seen. Such silence. It really wasn't so far from a town, but it seemed all the clocks in the world had stopped counting. So it was hard to suppose the usual rules applied. Sometimes there's only a hint, a possibility. What's magical sometimes has deeper roots than reason. I hope everyone knows that. I sat on the bench waiting for something, an angel perhaps, or dancers with legs of goats. No, I didn't see either, but only, I think, because I didn't stay long enough. So, we are in a long retreat, longer. We might be able to see some things. I don't know about the dancers with goat legs, but there's something else we might be able to see. Actually, some of you are already seeing it. And this seems like the perfect time to talk about uh, dependent origination, which is a difficult talk to give, especially difficult for me. Some, talk, some teachers give talks that are very didactic, and I'm not really that kind of a talk giver, whatever that's called. So... Something like dependent origination can get a little too detail-y, a little too complex, and um, I can lose my way in it. And it's also because dependent origination, the way the Buddha expressed it, goes against everything we think we are. Everything we know about ourselves, it goes against the grain on a lot of how we think and how we put things together. And so um, even though it is something that intellectually we can talk about, but intellectually doesn't make sense, I love it, love it, love it, love it, because I am a... I think it's because of the mystic nature of dependent origination, this nonsensical kind of way that dependent origination can show up, that it allows itself for us to think outside of the box in a way that we don't normally uh, perceive existence. And there's enough stillness, I think, time that we've been together in the practice that you can begin to see some things that you may never have seen before. You may begin to see some things about um, not so much who you are, but who we are as human beings. And this is what I think dependent origination points to. Uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, (laughs) 
He calls the wisdom of dependent origination unconcoctable. It is a unconcoctability, he says. And there's actually a poly word. I don't know if I pronounce it right. It's called atamayata, atamayata, something like that. That word means it's neither a positive nor a negative um, concocted understanding. You can't concoct it as something positive. Oh, I know dependent origination, and this is what it is, some positive thing. And you can't concoct it into something negative. It just has no, it's void of either way. But it is significant because upon Buddha's awakening, what he saw was dependent origination and the Four Noble Truths. And when he went to talk to the people who had left him because they thought he had lost it, lost his practice, what he shared with them was dependent origination and um, uh, the Four Noble Truths. So what he said was he saw something that he had not seen before. This, is, this seems kind of mysterious. There's a, there's a mystery about it. And there's a way that we can let the mystery itself point us. Another poem. You might see an angel anytime and anywhere. Of course, you have to open your eyes to a kind of second level. But it's not really hard. The whole business of what's reality and what isn't hasn't never been solved and probably never will be. So I don't care to be too definitive, too definite about anything. I have a lot of edges called perhaps and almost nothing you can call certainty for myself, but not for other people. That's a place you just can't get into, not entirely anyway, you know, other people's heads. I'll leave you with this. I don't care how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. It's enough to know that for some people, they exist and that they dance. So in a way, this is kind of the place that the Buddha was in when he was talking about dependent origination to me. He stepped into a world that was very much, as Bonte kind of talked about, very much rooted in an absolute understanding of things. And you don't even have to go to the Upanishad so much. When we stepped into this retreat, on day one, we were all absolutely thinking about certain things a certain way. You kind of know who you are, you know who your people are, you know where you come from, you know what you're going to do, you got your whole retreat planned out for you. It's pretty much we knew. And then you get into these places and you're like, nothing is turning out the way I wanted it to be. It's not happening the way I thought it was going to be. Something's wrong. And so he stepped into a world of absoluteness. And in that world of absoluteness, he brought in something completely different. So at its core, dependent origination is about these 12 links. They're called links, 12 aspects, I guess you could call it, that bound us to suffering. And uh, uh, probably a better way to think of it is chains us to suffering, traps us in suffering. It's in this cyclical nature of what's called samsara. Let me give you the 12 links here. There's this, begins with this idea of ignorance. Meaning, I think of that ignorance as uh, unmindful. You don't even know what's happening. You're just kind of going through the motions. 
you're actually, if you think about it, we're pulling out ignorance, but you're actually continuing from before into ignorance. And we have this uh, not paying attention. And it leads into mental formations, these sankharas, these kind of... uh, uh, kind of, it, it's it's the idea that there is. I, I just think of them as the habit formations that begin to happen, and we move into these habitual ways of seeing things, relating to things, being around things. We're caught in this kind of way of knowing what's going on because this is the way I think. Many of you, I hear it, uh, and I'm always trying to pick and poke at these balloons. Because I'll hear it. People will come in and say, yes, I got caught in all this anger. Anger, 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 anger. And knowing anger as I do, a lot of times you're not caught in anger. You're caught in energy. But without seeing that this is energy moving in the body, moving in your space, your ordinary mind just picks up that energy and does these habitual thinking, thoughts that we way we normally think. So this ignorance without seeing turns into this habitual way of relating to life. And in that, there is this consciousness that begins to form. Um, uh, We we, uh, begin to see it, not just think it, we see it all around us. We think we know what's happening. So my thinking, I see it, I know it, this is... This is anger thoughts. It's kind of hard for a teacher to even push up against some of these balloons and pop some of these bubbles because we're like hard in it. I know what's going on. This is it. And that consciousness leads into what we call name and form. And that name and form is what we begin to call what's happening. This stuff is happening. Energy is moving and we call it uh, we live in this world where we have named everything ad nauseum. And everything that we've named, a bird is a bird. And it can't be anything else but the bird. That's it. If I hear it, it's a bird. And we get trapped in this circular way of being. And that name and form touches up against our sense doors. It's just really vibrations in some respects. You could think of it as shifting vibrations. But when it touches, a sound touches our ear. Oh, that's a bird. I know what it is. And we get trapped in. It doesn't feel like we're trapped, but we're trapped in a world that that sound is a bird and only a bird and nothing else. And so we, get, we begin to get trapped into these perceptions and these ideas of what we think is going on. And immediately when that contact happens with these sense doors, we have a brain that automatically tags it. Pleasant, unpleasant, neither. Just tags it. Good sound, bad sound. Like that, don't like that. And we are following right along with it. So we have these automatic responses. This is what um, the perception side, I think, Brian's going to cover tomorrow. So I'm not really going to cover all of these, but Brian's going to cover this. We've been covering it, kind of all of it, and we're going to expand out on these different links in our own talks as we go along. So I'm just doing the general kind of view of it. But in this Vedana, it's so... Mind-driven, we're so trapped between the contact and the um, consciousness that we just follow whatever the mind says is going on. Mind says this is uh, unpleasant. Mind says this is pleasant. And the body has what we call unpleasant feelings. We call pleasant feelings and we have an automatic response to it. And this automatic response leads into craving, and then we get stuck in the clinging. It has to change. It cannot be this way. I need to fix it. We kind of dump into this 
no matter how many talks we give that says you don't control your practice, still, who here does not think I did something wrong when the samadhi is gone? Who here doesn't think I'm doing something good when the samadhi is here? It's sort of this, it doesn't matter how many times we hear it, and we intellectually can repeat it back, but in our lived experience, we get attached to what we like and what we don't like. We don't want anything about it. And we move right into this becoming, and we're basically caught that when that samadhi leaves, it hasn't even left. But that's a whole nother realm of angel territory. But that samadhi, when our perception is that it's gone, we fall into this death. But it was always ebbing and flowing along. It never was. But as soon as it's on the high end, we grab it. We think it's ours. It's on the low end. And we think, oh, I lost it. I messed up. And then even though it's like, depends on when you come into the interview with the teacher, you're either on the high end, like, I found it, or you're on the low end. It's gone. Practice, I want to go home. (laughs) That's it. Are we not in Kamada's lament? It's so hard. (laughs) So there's this up and then downing that happens, and it flows, and we are caught in it. And Buddha... And I don't know how he saw this. I mean, I think, when I think about my own practice, there were, he did try the practices of his day. He, he tried and practiced into the jhana, these pleasurable states, and that was supposed to transcend us out of dukkha. I mean, that's the whole point of this. That's the whole reason he left was to understand suffering and understand what's the point of all this. So that was supposed to transcend him out. I'm sure he did transcend out. I'm sure he did get in these blissful states that were just overwhelming. Some of us have seen those states where you're like, oh my God, this has got to be liberation. There cannot be anything other than this. And yet, it's so transitory, it leaves. It goes away, and we feel dejected, like we did something wrong. And so he could see that that can't be it. Even if they asked him to stay, I can't stay here. This isn't it. Even the people's like, okay, bear down. I mean, I'm a striver, so it's like, strive beyond. I don't care how much pain it is. I'm striving my way to liberation. And that... I know you guys have headaches, your neck is killing you, your shoulders are like, God, the pain is unbearable. But still, I'm striving on. (laughs) It's not working. That is not going to get you there. And he saw that. And somehow what he calls his middle way is this capacity to begin to see instead of this kind of following your thinking mind's thoughts about what's happening, you begin to rest back in this wider field that's softer and connected to the reality of what's happening, you can see something different you can begin to see how things are actually unfolding. And we have enough stillness and space here that we can begin to see something we had not seen before. So I don't think Buddha, I mean, Buddha didn't create samsara, this word of the cyclical nature of human existence and the misery of it. He didn't, he didn't coin that or create that understanding Samsara already existed. And many people in his day were practicing to get outside of samsara. And so you could see that it would be easy. We all feel that. That's what we feel when we have these moments of deep, unified concentration of the mind. It feels like I've transcended samsara. I'm out of it. Or 
if you just bear with the pain, you think that eventually I'm going to cut through this samsara and I'm going to be on the other end of it. And he saw that way that we get trapped in those two mind states and neither one of them work. You are still in the samsara when you are attached to that bliss and you are still in the samsara if you're not recognizing this constant pain is not getting you anywhere. That middle ground is what I think of as dependent origination. This is what we're seeing. And it begins with suffering, the recognition of it, what Shelley was talking about. It begins with this ability to see something is amiss here or seeing when I am in that bliss, am I leaning into it? Like uh, um, Rebecca was talking about. Instead, we want to have this more relaxed, present moment awareness. And so I've always looked at dependent origination in threes instead of uh, the 12 links, and it always helped me. So this is the way I want to talk a little bit about it. Take this ignorant side. It's this side that is this inner weaving between our ignorance of not knowing sankaras, these kind of habit ways of just relating to moments and times, our consciousness and the name and form, this knowing of stuff. This knowing of stuff. So here we are, think about it. We are sitting in silence for 45 minutes, an hour, hour and a half. You have no idea where the mind can go. No idea where it can go. You, you don't even want to know where the mind can go because if you follow the mind in its own way, you can see something you haven't seen before. But if you control where the mind goes, where do you think it's going to go? Wherever you thought it of before. Whatever you know, that's as far as it's going. So the idea of awakening is not possible if the only way to awaken is the mind you already know. Because you've already seen it. And you've seen everything. And you know, basically it's kind of dull. Nothing really spectacular going on. I mean, maybe I've had a spectacular moment in meditation, but my understanding of awakening is limited to some kind of spectacular moment in practice. But there have been times, I almost venture to say for all of you, where you were just sitting at the dining room table and all of a sudden the sensory experience of just the sound, people moving, dishes clanging a little bit, and the felt sense of intimacy of of like a hundred people, 80 people in a room, and yet it's so quiet and still. You feel as though you love everybody here, like you know everybody here. And that felt sense of intimacy and connection is not something your mind can generate. It is something that has to happen when you're in the present moment outside of your normal sankaric mind, this mind that thinks it knows what's going on. You can't be sitting there thinking, I'm at IMS sitting in the dining room, this is the food they're having, and these are the people I'm sitting with. You can't be in that space. You have to be in a space that's just uh, mysterious, open to whatever. Whatever's happening. It's all good. It's okay. Don't know anything, but it is uh, real. So this ignorant side, when we are unmindful, we're not paying attention to what's going on. We're in what you could call, what I would call this pre-awareness, pre-action. And it's hardwired to be trapped in the pushing and pulling of don't like like, don't like like, don't like like. 
ignore everything else. That ordinary mind would not pay attention to the beauty of being in the dining hall in that pristine moment. It would be too boring. Nothing's happening. Nothing's going on. Then when it realizes that this is actually pleasurable, I like this, then every time you go into the lunchroom, you expect it to be that way. Every time you hit the dining room, you're like, shh, be quiet, okay. (laughs) Just going to let the symphony of the sounds, and it sounds clangy, it's not working, people are bumping, it's not what it was. And it's because in that moment, it wasn't this ordinary mind's grasping, trying to make it something. It was learning how to rest in this unknown, rest in the mysterious of this magical present moment. So we use mindfulness to bring us to cut through that Uh, that ignorance. We use the mindfulness to kind of cut through it. The mindfulness itself is constantly bringing us into this moment. And the more continuously we keep employing this mindfulness, not as a kind of a forced uh, duty, got to do this, but more as a, it's going to be the mindfulness that's going to help me relax and step into that mystery. It's the mindfulness that's actually the gift to help me just be here. So it's not duty or force. It's more of the way you would gently take care of an infant. Not because of duty or force, but because you take care mindfully doing their little shoes or their clothes on, not because you have to, unless you're a pediatric nurse. They don't have no, they're like whipping them about. (laughs) Not that. It's like a new parent, that level of, woo, very nice and gentle. And that kind of kindness we are cultivating in metta. We're cultivating intentionally this meta version of kindness so we can actually be with a moment with a level of kindness and not caught in trying to force it to be what we think it should be. That's all the... We need to see that ignorance. So then there's this... uh, let me see if I if I thought. Yes, I had a poem from Mary. I knew Mary was going to help me along here. So this is called the Wasp. I love this poem. She says, "Why the wasp was on my bed, I didn't know. Why I was in the bed, I did know. Why there wasn't room for both of us." I didn't know. I watched it idly. Idleness can be a form of dying. I did know that. The wasp didn't communicate how it felt, but it did look confused on the white sheets as though it had landed somewhere in the Arctic. And it did flick its wings when I raised my legs, causing an upheaval. I didn't want to be lying there. I didn't want to be going in that direction. And so I say it was a gift when it rose into the air and, as wasps do, expressed itself in a sudden and well-aimed motion. Almost delicious was its deep, inflexible sting. And this... It's where I think we move into the second part of this dependent origination. Because when we are not in mindfulness and we are in this ignorance, then these next four links, the sense doors, the contact, the feeling tones, and this craving begin to intersect with each other in what I would call the comma section. It's just our, 
It's the comma, the action that's actually happening. Ignorance leads into this action, and it, it deals with our current situation uh, understanding. In some respects, I think of the, the, the uh, ignorance side as past understanding that floods its way into our current moment. Now we're in this current moment in the comma of what's happening right now, and it plays out according to our level of ignorance or mindfulness. If we are ignorant, then as soon as an unpleasant feeling tone, as soon as a contact hits our sense door, even our thoughts, some uh, energy shifts, and we have a thought, and as soon as that contact hits that thought, the mind can take us up into that thought, and we are off and gone to the races. And we don't even know. We start feeling unpleasant. We start having all these responses. Now I want the thoughts to go away. And there's all of this upheaval that begins to happen. And it's all very automatic. Um, Very much just a part of who we are as human beings. So this mindfulness is about learning to bring our attention into the present moment. We don't care what's happening. I mean, I know that there's a sense that we should be in this, you know, ever-growing sense of peacefulness. I had that same energy whenever I go on a retreat. I think I should be growing into peacefulness, coming into my sense of, you know, enlightenment. But it's not like that in reality. It's very up and down, very jolty here and there, peacefulness. There's a kind of a way I've learned to begin to watch the conditions that lead to this moment, that lead to that moment. I care more about the conditions that's going on in a kind of a nerdy way than I care about what's actually happening. I just want to see if I lost my samadhi. How did that happen? I mean, it wasn't me. So what happened? What changed? What shifted? And in this present moment, you could begin to get very interested because there is no way to not have the present moment. It's sort of like in the present moment, you can be swept away or your mindfulness can bring you into this great adventure of investigating what's actually happening. Not investigating on the sense of like a police officer, just a facts ma'am and writing it all down, but investigating it like closing your eyes and sensing into what's actually happening here. This is like this kind of gentle moving into waters. A way to think about this, I think, is You can imagine this stillness, this pond that's still. And you can see it, the Gaston Pond sometimes when you walk by. It's like ice, like still, except for the part where the motor is. But you can look a little bit further in and it's like pristine still. So if you're up against one of the edges... Some leaf that has nothing to do with nobody, it's a wind, it's how long it's been hanging on the tree, it's about ready to fall anyway. It could be anything that causes that leaf to just break off. It doesn't have anything to do with you. Leaf falls, bloop, 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 touches that pond, and immediately we see the ripple of that leaf and want to smooth the pond back out. Drop down, fix the pond, straighten it all back out. And just creating more mess, more and more ripples, still getting frustrated that our actions are not making it still again. So in a way, in this comma section, this kind of being with the present moment is about learning how to not move against that pleasant, unpleasant, that contact that happens and steady yourself 
So when the leaf comes and it falls down, it hits the pond, you are looking at the ripples itself. And you watch the ripples ripple out and your still pond comes back. But if you're not willing to steady yourself in the present moment with whatever is arising, trusting that whatever is arising is the outer conditioning to help you see in that moment, it will ripple out. In that moment, we can begin to see what the Buddha was pointing to. You don't actually have to do much of anything at all. It will smooth out. And the stilling begins to happen. It's happened in the center. I know many of you, when you first got here, well, I should say the three-monthers probably thought, I'll never get still again. It's just going to be terrible. Because there was so much energy that for the three-monthers who had left a still room, they thought, ah, it's too much. And for those of you that were coming in into all that stillness, one of the most difficult thing in a long retreat is coming in as part two because you're like so sleepy. It's so still and it seems like I'll never be able to get my balance in this stillness. I'm so, so, it's like uh, so still in here. Let's just go to sleep. And that steadiness practice, you begin to see that all this extra energy, low energy, it just all in its own way magically steals itself out. Not all this efforting that we have to do. This is how I think uh, Mary Oliver is helping me with this. She says, this is her poem, Rumi. When Rumi went into the tavern I followed. I heard a lot of crazy talk and a lot of wise talk. But the roses wouldn't grow in my hair. When Rumi left the tavern, I followed. I don't mean just to peek at such a famous fellow. Indeed, he was rather ridiculous with his long beard and dusty feet. But I heard less of the crazy talk and a lot more of the wise talk. And I was hopeful enough to keep listening until the day I found myself transformed into an entire garden of roses. So in a way, what I think Mary Oliver's pointing to, what I'm trying to point to is the point of this present moment practice that we're here is on purpose to be still with whatever is coming up. And the whatever's coming up is really your body trying to help you see where suffering is. So of course there's going to be some suffering. It's showing you where you're suffering where our habit energies take us places, which leads to this third section here. It's what I call this conditionality. It's the clinging or this attachment, the becoming, the birth, this aging and death. So in this present moment, whatever's happening We get trapped in that pleasant, unpleasant, I don't like it, pushing it away, that desire, aversion, that energy. We get, we just get stuck, attached to it, wanting to fix it, wanting to make it different, wanting to organize it or whatever. And in that moment, we begin to create this whole self and that self is moving into uh, just some idea of who we think we are. I hear it. I hear it. I hear it in myself. I'm going to use an example of myself, but I hear it in you. This kind of, oh, yes, that's my doubting self. Oh, there I go. That's the aversion. Oh, I have so much desire. I want this. I want that. All of that. This is who I am. I, I can't make it go away. It's who I am, and I can't make it go away. And you're right. 
as long as it's who you are, you can make it go away because it's who you are. It's not going anywhere. And we get trapped in our conditionality. And that conditionality leads to us stop paying attention and this circular, samsaric kind of pressure that we get stuck in all the time. I really wanted to tell you guys about a sutta. I hope I have enough time to say it. Because I stumbled upon this sutta and it changed my whole understanding. Yeah, that's terrible to say. I hope I get to it. This is it right here, but I may not be able to tell you. I first want to tell you how I understood this with my own anger. I got dropped into a family that was a hot mess. I mean, my parents did not understand how to manage their own anger. And my father had aggressive anger. My mother had passive anger. I mean, they were both black in America, so of course they had anger. It's just like living with it. And all of that anger, I remember when I was in the fourth grade walking home from school with this great idea. People don't mess with you when you're angry. They don't, they don't mess with you. So I got to be angry. And I remember practicing on my way home, had to be angry. You said, what? I know you aren't talking to me. Oh, my God. I can remember practicing being angry because I needed to learn how to be angry. And you can tell my natural constitution is jovial. It's always been that way. But I was living in a world where I thought I had to be angry to get something. It wasn't going to work out right for me if I didn't. And then I spent the next 40 years being angry. But by, you know, as a kid, it kind of worked out for me. Because my mother didn't want to deal with me when I was angry. My father didn't want to deal with me. They would be like, go to your room. Just don't be around us. And I'm like... And then I would go in, I'd be like, I know what I'm doing. I did not realize that I was reinforcing this mind state that anger is the way to be. Anger is the way to be. Anger is the way to be. And as I got older, now this anger is problematic. I can't stop it. The mind is habitually connected to it. And the slightest thing my response was going to be anger. Even when I didn't want to be angry anymore with partners, with kids, it didn't matter. I was always, always angry. And I became, not just by me, but my family thought of me. This is what I was pointing to with my sister. I was the angry one in my house. And it it was who I am. And I remember going to Rodney and saying, I got to work on this anger. He was my teacher at the time. I got to work on this. This is, I almost lost my job several times for getting ready to swing on somebody. So this anger, I got to do something about this. And he said, notice your irritations. I don't get irritated. I'm like, (laughs) we're talking zero to 90. We don't, there's no irritations. thinking he's thinking he's twisted that's not what's happening but he said no he says yes you get irritated to where I find that since that right because if you go to the anger you've already you're already on the far side you're already in your conditionality and you're already moving into ignorance you're already trapped in the suffering if you want to begin to see it It's in the present moment. Steady yourself here and feel into what's happening. And I'm not going to tell you, I mean, I saw a lot, a lot about my anger, a lot of stuff. But the one moment when I really begin to realize something's amiss here is I would catch the bus to work. And inevitably, I would run, I lived... (laughs) This is embarrassing. I lived two and a half blocks from the bus stop. And inevitably, I would have to run that last half a block to catch the bus. And every day, 
I would see the bus driving by, and I would run, 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 and I would get to the bus stop, and he would drive off, and I was mad, angry, all the way into work, all the way through. I feel sorry for most of the attorneys that had to deal with me because I'm angry at this bus driver. And I wouldn't see it day after day after day after day. I would get to the same spot and there would be the bus driving by. And I would get angry and I would be angry all the way to work, all morning, never saw it. Never, ever, ever, ever saw it. Until one day I did. I saw myself getting angry. I'm sitting at the bus stop like shaking. And I'm so mad. I'm on the bus, angry, and I'm trying to ask myself, why am I so angry? I mean, it's not the bus driver's fault that I keep leaving at the same time. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to leave a little early. Didn't matter how early I got up. It didn't matter what I did. Every single day I would leave at the exact same time. Bus would drive by. (laughs) This helped me begin to realize something that the Buddha said about this dependent origination. And so I want you to hear. He said the whole process is without life force. It's void of life force. It's true, unmistakable, unborn, not risen, uncreated, uncompounded, unobstructed, uh, tranquil, fearless, uncontroversible, unexhaustible, and by nature, never stilled. So these, this, this sankara is going to keep doing the exact same thing over and over and over because it's not a self. It is a mechanical, habitual thing. And somehow, in my deciding I wanted to be angry, my entire existence is going to help me be angry. Why would it ever change? Why would it ever do something different? And it doesn't matter how I don't want, mentally don't want something, it will continue. It will continue. This is what... This is why I think Buddha called this the middle way. It will continue. You can beg your mind, please don't do that to me anymore. It'll continue. You already know this. You have begged your mind to please stop talking. Does not stop. It's forever. It will do it forever more. And it will never stop. You'll be on your deathbed. It'll still be talking. Same thing. And somehow what I begin to realize is that the Four Noble Truth the Buddha was pointing to is this slicing in. It is this beginning to recognize there's suffering in this. There's suffering in this. That's what we want to stay with. There's something, there's suffering. That's what Rodney was pointing to with the anger. You gotta feel that. You gotta feel that difficulty, feel the pain of it. So all the stuff that you guys are seeing, it's not up in the head thinking about that story, wishing I hadn't done it. It's more of resting down in the body, steady, safe place, feeling into it. This is painful. And when we begin to feel this suffering, see how we're holding on to some identity that we can let go of, or the perception we have that Brian's going to talk about tomorrow, then we can begin to free ourselves. That's what happened. I begin to spend time with the felt sense of anger, the felt sense of irritation. I actually begin to see how irritated I would get at the slightest thing. And that I would ignore that, suck that up, suck that up, suck that up, suck that up, until I was in some state of rage. The more I saw it in the present moment window, 
the less impactful it got, more and more and more. So this is sutta I want to talk about. I'll say it at the end here. I just stumbled upon this sutta. I mean, like a Buddha little nerd. And so I would look up words and I read some article about His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama, and he said, he gave this great public talk on the Rice Seedling Sutra. It's a Mahayana Sutra. I, I thought I would just look online and find it. Oh, it was hard to find this. When I finally find it, I read it, and I love it. I think the way, it's very long, so I got to tighten it down real short. So the Buddha is standing still, looking at this rice paddy. And some monks around him, I guess, and he's looking at this rice paddy, and he says, if one sees dependent arising, dependent origination." then they see the Dhamma. And if they see the Dhamma, they see the Buddha. And he walked off. And so Sariputta, he went to another senior monk, uh, Maitreya, and he said, what is the Buddha talking about? What was that profound statement? And so Maitreya, this sutra, is Maitreya explaining what the Buddha was saying. And I think the reason why I like this is because he used a rice seedling rather than a human being. So this is what he said, basically. There is a seed, and in that seed, it becomes a sprout. And from the sprout, it becomes a, what is it, what's after the sprout? It becomes a a leaf. And from the leaf is a stem, from the stem is a pedestal, from the pedestal is a pistol, from the pistol is a flower, and from the flower is a fruit. Turns into rice. He says, if there's no seed, there won't be a sprout, and there won't be the rest of it. But this seed, we can begin to grasp this a little, is, is kind of dependent upon how that seed got thrown, right? Somebody just threw some rice seeds out there. And some of the seeds landed in good soil. Some of the seeds landed over there in the shade. That's probably where I landed when I was growing up. But some of the seeds may have landed in water. And some of the seeds landed all these different places. You just kind of, you don't have any control over that. Just throw these seeds out. All of us here, all of us born into families we didn't have any control over. But then the seed, if the seed got some soil, water, moisture, that seed can turn into a sprout. Every one of us here had enough uh, external conditions to turn into a sprout. Every one of us here had enough external conditions um, to, to move up the whole category and turn into fruit. But you need both the external conditions and each seed also has to have internal, internal capacity to grow. But then as the Buddha goes through this, or uh, as Maitreya goes through this explaining it, he says that the seed is not continuous. It's not that the seed turns into a sprout and then it turns into a pistol, a leaf, a stem, and all the way through to rice. So the rice turns into, the seed turns into rice. What he says is that the seed is a seed in and of itself and it dies, like Dora was pointing to about the stars. It dies when the sprout comes and a sprout is a sprout. And when it turns into a leaf, the sprout dies, and the leaf is there, and the stem is there. And there is this rising and falling that happens with us. So at any moment, the freeing nature of this non-continuous, non-permanent, like independent, it arises in the moment you're at. So each one of us, as each moment goes on, Throughout this retreat, you're in a moment, in that moment. It's unlike any other moment you've had before. 
It's not a continuation of the previous moment. It is a new moment based on the conditions that happen to be here, based on how you're feeling, how lunch settled or didn't settle, how your sleepiness is, whether you got enough sleep, you didn't get enough sleep, how the temperature in the room is, how your blanket feels or doesn't feel. All kinds of things come into play in a given moment that turns that moment into that moment. So on one hand, it can be a little destabilizing, this idea that we're not continuously connected. But if we're in the realm of Mary Oliver, then every single moment of every single day of this retreat has the potential for showing you something you've never seen before every single moment. If you give it the space to be right here, this moment, not, oh, another sit, same old sit, same old walking. It's not that. Every single walking is completely different. Every sit, completely different. Present moment, right here. And then you can investigate what actually shows up. It's when I stopped thinking, oh, I'm an angry person, right? Anger just arose in this moment, but it wasn't here in that moment. I begin to notice. Sometimes I got angry, sometimes I didn't. And then I was getting less, less angry, more angry. Sometimes I would get angry and couldn't control it until after I got home. And then I did do a lot of medicining. And then other times I could stop it before it ever started. But gradually over time, by taking out this label, I'm an angry person, I could interrupt this conditionality, wherever it came from. I, who cares? That's what I thought was the way to be when I was a kid. So I want to leave you with this idea that you're not just practicing, you're not just sort of practicing the same old, same old, every single sit. Every time you walk into this hall, you are in a whole nother realm, whole nother place. Who knows where, it's, where you're at? Who knows what's going to happen? Who knows what that sit's going to be? It's all very different. Every time you do a walking, it's all very different. So I'll leave you with this. This is my last one. Mary Oliver has a way of just, I don't know. I didn't even like poetry until I found Mary Oliver. And then I'm like, God, this is the way I think a poet is supposed to be. But this is the last poem I want to read of hers. It says, uh, it's called Forgive Me. Um, she says, angels are wonderful, but they are so well aloof. It's what I sense in the mud, in the rocks of the trees, and the roots of the trees, or the well, or the barn, or the rock with the citron map of lichen that halts my feet and makes my eyes flare feeling the presence of some spirit, some small God who abides there. So angels are wonderful, but they are so well aloof. It's what I sense in the mud and the roots of the trees or the well or the barn or the rock with the citron map of lichen that halts my feet and makes my eyes flare feeling the presence of some spirit, some small God who abides there. If I were a perfect person, I would be bowing continuously. I'm not. Though, I pause wherever I feel this holiness, which is why I'm often so late coming back from wherever I went. Forgive me.
<laughs> Let's just take a moment. Mary Oliver and I, thank you for your kind attention. <laughs> and we will come back and, uh, after some walking and, and uh, have a sit with chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.